Open the precious Word of God to Romans chapter 10. What a great difference the Apostle is going to show us between righteousness by the law of Moses and righteousness by Jesus Christ. What a great difference. We'll stay here in these verses 6 through 13 as long as it takes us. And then verses 14 through 18, we'll take a little while here just to make sure that you understand them. But today, if the Lord will be merciful, we'll try to deal with verses 6 through 9. But we need to start at verse 5, because verse 5 tells us why we have a verse 6. And the holy disjunctive that starts verse 6, that holy inspired but, is the great contrast that we have in Jesus Christ compared to the law of Moses. I read to you verses 5 through 9. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen Amen and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us now and bless us with that encouragement and revival and coming of the faith that you've implanted in us to our lips to make confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 5 tells us Moses describes in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5 the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. If you were to be saved by the law of Moses, and the law of Moses was never designed to save anyone, nor did it ever save anyone, You had to keep all the commandments that Moses wrote in the books of Moses in order to be saved. And if you could keep them all, then you would have eternal life. But no man could keep them all because they were designed to condemn men rather than save men. They were designed to show us our sinfulness so that we would know that we needed a Savior named the Lord Jesus Christ. The law was a schoolmaster to direct us to Jesus Christ. And we get that by looking at verse 5 where the Apostle quotes from the Old Testament, where Moses described in a summary statement the nature of the law. And then he's going to describe in a summary statement the nature of grace in the book of Romans, opposing anyone who thought they could be saved by the law. So there's two statement summary statements of salvation. One about the law of Moses and one about the righteousness which is of faith. The way he describes it, it is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, because that is given to us in his little 
inspired helpers, that is and that is. And I'm thankful for the that is's of the Bible. But Romans 5 says, The man which doeth those things shall live by them. If a man were to do those things, he'd, be, he'd have eternal life. He wouldn't be guilty before God if he could keep the law of Moses, but no one could keep it. And so it did not save any. In order to back up what I'm telling you here, just look briefly before we go, get right into verse 6 at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. Galatians chapter 3 and 10. Galatians is a similar epistle to the epistle to the Romans because the apostles dealing with the same kind of doctrinal heresy, and that is Jewish legalism, that we can be saved and live and go to heaven and spend eternal life with God by keeping the law of Moses. And the Galatians had been corrupted from their simple faith in Christ that we have to believe such a thing. Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. If you try to bring the law into your salvation at all, you're under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So if you try to bring the law in, you are in serious trouble because unless you continue in doing all things that are written there, you're cursed. And we know the answer to that. Everyone's cursed by the law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God is what Paul already taught us in the third chapter of Romans. If you stay there in Galatians 3 and come over to verse 21, you can read it this way. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The law was to show us we needed the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in the law there were little hints of what was coming in the Lord Jesus Christ securing righteousness for us, and all we needed to do that it was to show that it was ours is to believe on Him. And so we come to the sixth verse of Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 and verse 6. But, but, thank you, Lord, that we are not left in the fifth verse. Do you know how many Jews were left in the fifth verse? And that was what the, set the Apostle Paul to grieving and great sorrow in his heart for his kinsmen who were locked up in a system of religion that could never give them the assurance of their salvation and that they would continue as long as they lived trying to keep Moses' commandments in order to be saved. But the righteousness which is of faith, and I just read Galatians three twenty-one and 22 to you that made reference to the fact that all we do is believe. And when we believe, that doesn't earn us salvation. It's not a condition for salvation. It is the evidence and the proof and the assurance of salvation. Just like when Abraham believed, it did not change his standing before God. In Genesis 15, 6, when it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. When you come into the New Testament, that word counted is replaced with accounted, replaced with imputed, and replaced with reckoned, all about Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. When Abraham believed God well into his life in Genesis 15, 6, 
and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was just the evidence and the proof and the assurance that Abraham was a righteous man. He had already been walking with God and following God for decades. The preparation of the heart in Abraham and the answer of the tongue had been prepared long before Genesis 15. But that signal event, meaning that important event, that watershed event in his life in Genesis 15 was important to the Apostle Paul, so he just keeps quoting it and quoting it and quoting it and quoting it in Romans and in Galatians because Abraham was the father of the the Jews. He was the father of the Jews. And so the strongest statement that you could ever make to a Jew is, how was Abraham righteous? It was before he was circumcised. It was before the law of Moses because Moses came 400 years later. How was Abraham declared to be righteous? He believed God. Believing God didn't make him righteous. Only a righteous man ever will believe God. Do you think the heart that's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it, is going to believe God? Not unless God prepares that heart, and the preparation of the heart in the New Testament is described to us rather plainly. It's a new heart, and it's a quickened heart, and it's being born again. And so here we come. That word, but... But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. We have a different summary statement about the gospel of Jesus Christ as compared to the law of Moses. The law of Moses was, do this and live. The law of Jesus Christ is, and it's called the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8. Live and do. Moses, do and you can live. The gospel, I'll give you life, and then use it to do what I command you. For we are created in him unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The righteousness which is of faith. That expression, righteousness which is of faith, is a description of the gospel of the grace of God. That is Paul's terminology for his epistle to the Romans. It starts out as early as verse 17 of the first chapter. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from, isn't that an interesting verse, from faith to faith. Was Paul looking for people that didn't have faith so that he could preach the gospel to them so that they could have faith? Paul wanted to preach the gospel, he told the Romans, to those that had faith so that we might be mutually blessed by the faith that is in you and the faith that is in me. Because if there's not faith in a man, what are you going to preach to? What are you going to draw forth? When the Bible says a few verses from now, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, it doesn't mean to come into existence in your heart. It means to come out of your heart with the statement, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you go down into the water like the Ethiopian eunuch did with Philip. That isn't faith coming into your heart. God puts faith in our heart. He prepares the heart. Then the gospel comes along and it draws it out first in, first in a profession of our faith. And then we add to that faith the virtue and the knowledge and the godliness and all the things that Second Peter chapter 1 tells us that we add to the faith which we have by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Second Peter tells us that we have obtained faith by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's given to us. God chose the poor of this world. What does it say in James 2.5? Rich in faith. 
Does that verse say God chose the poor that were rich in faith to be His children? Or does it say God chose the poor rich in faith, meaning He put His faith in them? Because He chose to save the poor of this world. And how did He save them? By the righteousness of Jesus Christ and putting faith in their hearts. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, God prepared your heart and put it in your heart. If you don't this morning and you wish I'd hurry up and end so that you can go home and play video games, you ought to be scared out of your wits. Because it's what's in the heart of man that comes out in the gospel. The righteousness which is of faith, that is an expression about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaketh on this wise. See, Moses spoke in verse 5 about the law. Now Paul is going to speak in verse 6 about the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And he does it this way. First of all, he says what it doesn't say. And then he's going to tell you what it does say. In this summary statement about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it first of all says two things that it is not. And then it tells us one thing that it is. If we can lump some things together to make it one thing that it is. First of all, the righteousness which is of faith, which is the gospel of Christ, does not want you or allow you to say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? Who's going to go to heaven? Who's going to go to heaven and bring salvation down to me? Who's going to get saved? Don't say that in your heart. The gospel that Paul preached was so different from Moses. Moses was, who's going to get saved? Whoever keeps the law. Whoever does everything that's written in the law is going to get saved. No one could get saved by it. No one was saved by it. But here comes the gospel and it says, don't be asking questions about who's going to go to heaven, who's going to go to heaven and bring down salvation, who's going to bring down the word of salvation, who's going to bring down the gospel of salvation from heaven. Because that's to bring Christ down from above. Jesus Christ has finished salvation and gone into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God. And if you start worrying and fussing about who's going to get saved, and if you're wondering how salvation is going to be brought down to man, and if you're wondering who's going to bring the message and the news of how we get saved, you're asking questions that shouldn't be asked. Don't say those things in your heart. Because when you say those things, you are forgetting, you're neglecting, you're overlooking what Jesus Christ has already done. And so the apostle says, if you ask this question, who shall ascend into heaven? You're bringing Christ down from his throne where he is seated, having finished the work of our salvation. Everything we need, Jesus Christ already did. He has already saved us. Remember, we are in Romans 10. We have already learned in Romans chapter 3 that our righteousness is by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've already learned in Romans chapter 5, when we were enemies, God sent forth His Son to die for us. In Romans chapter 5, we've already learned that righteousness comes by the obedience of one. We've already learned in Romans chapter 9, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. We've already learned in Romans chapter 8, and around verse 36, 33 says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? 36 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Romans chapter 4. Listen, I can't stop there. I just got to keep going. Look, Romans 4. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Do you want to know how you get righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ? By the finished work of the Son of God. And it's been taught in every chapter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans 1.16 For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is only revealed by the gospel. It's not conveyed, it's not brought, and it's not obtained by you believing the gospel. It's revealed from chapter 1, then chapter 3, then chapter 4. And I want 4 right now because it words it this way in the last two verses of Romans 4. I'm going to back up farther than that. I want to back up to verse 22. Romans 4.22, and see if this doesn't help us. Romans 4.22, and therefore, speaking of Abraham and being justified by faith. And how was Abraham justified by faith? God declared him to be a righteous man because he believed the promise. Abraham, you're going to have so many children, they're going to be like the stars that you can't number in the heavens. And that short little conversation that Abraham had with the Lord is recorded for us in Genesis 15. But Genesis 14, Genesis 13, and Genesis 12 have already told us God's and Abraham have been walking together, worshiping together for a long time. And, you know, if you really want to get serious here about Abraham, I'm very tempted, and I've been tempted since I started this epistle, is to go back and preach a whole series on a timeline of Abraham's life. It is a most useful device. It helps me very much. James chapter 2 tells us that what happened in Genesis chapter 15 wasn't very meaningful anyway. Because the devils believe and tremble. So Abraham believing God's promise in Genesis 15 didn't amount to much. It wasn't enough of saving evidence for Abraham. Abraham had saving evidence much later, Genesis 22, when he took his son Isaac up and put him on an altar and drew a knife to slay him. Then God said, Now I know that thou fearest me. And James would write in James chapter 2, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified. And do you know how we get to justify ourselves, Shane? It's to go home today and to spend the rest of this day and the rest of this week loving your wife the way the Lord told you to. Me too. means I turn it off a little earlier than usual. You know what I mean. Shut windows down. Because he he hasn't asked me to slay my son in an altar. He's just asked me to Slay whatever is in me that's keeping me from being the best husband I should be. And James would say, then the statement from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, was fulfilled. That wasn't really fulfilled until Abraham did something to show that he really believed in God. And he really believed in God when he raised a knife to kill his son, the promised son. He knew that God would raise him from the dead if he killed him. Because he knew that was the promised son. Is that a lot of faith? But that's faith brought into activity. And how do we show our faith brought into activity for these Romans? It was to open their mouths and say, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Do you know what that cost them in the synagogue? Bye-bye. Do you know what it cost them in the temple? Bye-bye. Do you know what it cost them against the Romans who said that there was only one Lord and his name was Caesar? That was some faith. So you don't know anything about that compared to the Romans, and it certainly isn't a Billy Graham crusade. 
I want you to get up out of your seats now with the hundreds and come down here and say that Jesus is Lord. That's not going to get you anywhere. It's never gotten anyone anywhere. Romans 4, 22. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. See, there's the word imputed, though in Genesis 15, 6, it says counted. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness because he believed that he was going to have a son by Sarah when the two of them were reproductively dead. He staggered down at the promise of God, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. It's all described there in the previous five verses before verse 22. Verse 23 now was not written for his sake alone. Do you know why that was written in Genesis 15? For me to be able to teach it to you this morning, 4,000 years later. It was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have faith imputed, counted, accounted, and reckoned unto you, because it's the evidence of a righteous man. You have righteousness reckoned and accounted, counted and imputed to you by the declaration of God. This is the first step of the evidence of a righteous man. He believes the record that I have given of Jesus Christ. Then we are supposed to add to that faith the things that the Bible teaches us. And it goes on to say in verse 25, here's where the righteousness actually came from. We lay hold of it by faith, but it comes from the Lord Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses... That means he died for our sins and was raised again for our justification, showing that sin had no more power over him. He went straight into heaven into the presence of God and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 would say, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That is our justification. That is our righteousness. Our faith is simply the way that we lay hold of it for ourselves. It doesn't change our standing before God in the least degree. In a legal sense, it's simply our embracing of it. It's called laying hold of eternal life. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. And you're saying, what does that mean? Well, you go about five verses later and it says, if the rich will give of their abundance, if the rich will pull their wallets and give money to the poor, be ready to distribute and willing to communicate, that is how they lay hold of eternal life. And that is how they lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. That doesn't make them righteous. That is the evidence that somebody has done a preparation in their heart that is amazing. That the rich would want to give away their wealth to the poor saints. Not because a man is poor, but because a man is a saint who happens to be poor. Who made that change in a man? That's how he lays hold of eternal life. That isn't gaining eternal life. That's just assuring himself that he's got it. And don't we all want that kind of evidence? That's why it's called a labor of love. And it's why it's called a work of faith. And it's called the patience of hope. In 1 Thessalonians, I hate having to spend all this time and you do not know how angry it makes me that I have to work so hard to undo all the Arminian junk that you've been taught for years. I despise it. This passage is all positive. It's glorious. It's wonderful. But not only do I have to deal with the but that starts off verse 6 where it's set in 
distinction from Jewish legalism. I have to work my way through it phrase by phrase, undoing all the Arminian idiocy that thinks that there's a sinner dead in trespasses and sins that we tell about Jesus dying on the cross and in the depravity of his deceitful and desperately wicked heart, he cries out, I love Jesus. A man in the deceitfulness and desperately wickedness of his heart will never cry out, I love Jesus. His heart needs to be prepared and it needs to be put in his tongue because the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The Lord has to do that work first. They love to quote John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And they just stop there. They teach their little children to memorize it, just like I did. John 1, 12. They, they just ignore John 1, 13. And they'll just quote it over and over again like it's a mantra. You know, if I'd say it ten times, maybe I'm going to go to heaven. You know how many times I invited Jesus into my heart based on their scheme of salvation? Over and over again, every time a man preached a good sermon and told enough gory stories about somebody dying before their time, I'd invite him into my heart. When my dad would go down to Ann Arbor St. Joseph Mercy Hospital or the Ann Arbor University of Michigan Hospital, when somebody's dying or we'd go to a funeral, oh, trust me, I'd invite him into my heart again. There's no, there's no assurance in doing something ridiculous like that. I'm glad that God received what Jesus Christ did for me and receives me on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for me. I'm glad that God accepts me, not that I accept Him. Ephesians chapter 1, 6 tells me that I'm accepted in the Beloved, not that I'm accepting the Beloved. Oh, makes me sick. John 1, 13, what does it say about those that believe, present tense, in His name, which were born? Not of blood. Now let's listen nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, are you going to take the gospel to a man that's not a child of God and lay out to him that Jesus died for him and that if he would believe it, he can become a child of God when it says it is not of the will of the flesh? If he's not born again and he's not a child of God, he's only got one thing in him, flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Amen. What are you going to tell his flesh? I just, I just need to hear it here. What are you going to tell his flesh? Jesus died for you. Jesus who? Jesus Christ, get away from me, you idiot. They'll curse in his name. Right. I'm sick of them. I despise them. I despise their theology their soteriology, their corruption of the gospel. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? Romans 10, 6. Who's going to go to heaven? Who's going to go up to heaven and find out how we can get there? Who's going to bring the power of salvation down to us? Who's going to tell us the recipe that we need to follow to get there? Don't say those things. Because if you say those things, you're bringing Christ down from above because Jesus already came to earth and did all those things for us and you're trying to pull them back down again. The Roman Catholics do it and they'll admit it. So do the Arminians. Let me chase it for just a couple of minutes. Number one, the Roman Catholic priests believe that they bring Jesus Christ down from His throne on their altars every time they perform Mass. When they say, 
This is my body. And they turn that cracker into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe they brought Jesus down from his throne onto their altar. They say it. They admit it. They know it. They claim it. It's in their doctrine. It's sick. Because they're trying to help people find out who's going to go to heaven. And where's the power of salvation? And where's the recipe for getting there? They, they, their recipe is seven sacraments, with the main one being the Mass. The Arminians say, you need to bring him down from his throne and get him to come into your heart because he's waiting for you to invite him in. From Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, they don't have the foggiest clue of what that verse is about. I'm going to tell you something that if they would read the book of Revelation, instead of picking their sound bites, they would find out that the Lord Jesus Christ opens and no man can shut And when he shuts, no man can open all in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And he doesn't look anything like that long-haired, effeminate hermaphrodite that they post on all their pictures, put in their churches, hang on their key rings, put in their prayer rooms. That long-haired picture, that brown-eyed, feminine man, pitiful. The Lord Jesus Christ. How do you get to Revelation 3.20 without reading Revelation chapter 1? How do you get there? Tell me how. How can you read Revelation 3 without passing over Revelation 1? If you read Revelation 1, what color is his hair? White as snow. What color are his eyes? Some brown-eyed hound dog? Fire. For those of you with brown eyes, please forgive me. I just I want to compare him to eyes of fire. What's coming out of his mouth? Drool? A sharp two-edged sword. He says, open! And you'll open. You'll say, well, what about Revelation 3.20? That is addressed by Jesus Christ to a church offering to come in and have fellowship and sup with them because they thought they were doing fine without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with salvation at all. Romans chapter 10 and verse 6. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? Who's going to get this done for us? How are we going to get saved? Who's going to go up there and find out how to do this? That is to bring Christ down from above. He's already done it. Or, don't ask this question. Who shall descend to the deep? Who's going to go into the grave? Who's going to die? Who's going to go to hell? Who's going to pay for our sins? Who's going to suffer for us? Who's going to go into the deep? Who's going to go and bring back the message of salvation for us? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. For you to even talk that way or think that way, then you're saying Jesus didn't die for our sins. You're still trying to figure out how you're going to get saved. How you're going to have your sins paid for. I want to tell you something, brethren. I'll tell... Listen. In my flesh, I should probably be... I should probably be a financial analyst somewhere. I look at Romans 10 and 5 through those verses and all that Arminian noise ringing in my ears. And it's a lonely job. And I'm, I don't, want any, I don't any, want any pity at all. I just want to tell you that it's hard sometimes. And when I ask you to pray for me that I'll rightly divide the word of truth, I'm begging you. Because I hate all that noise from my past that constantly is knocking at me. And I want, never mind. It makes me angry. But you know what? I want to thank God. All this is to thank God. Because he puts in parentheses, that is, to bring Christ 
down from above, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and read verses 11 through 14, where this quotation is taken from, you aren't going to have a clue. Let me show you. Look ahead in chapter 10 to verse 18. Romans 10, 18. But I say, have they not heard? Haven't the Jews heard the message of the gospel and why aren't they believing it? Look at Paul's answer. Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words into the ends of the world. Where's that coming from in the Bible? Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, when you're looking at it, what's, whose words are going into the ends of the world? The natural creation of the sun. When Paul's talking about it, whose words are going into the end of the world? The preachers of the gospel. He can take an Old Testament quotation about the universal spread of God's knowledge by the natural creation and take it and apply it to the universal spread by the preaching of preachers in that 18th verse. I'm just telling you. And so when we come back here, he's quoting Moses right now, but he's, he's, mess, he's, he's shaking Moses up a little bit. Because right. Moses was talking about a law that was going to come to Israel. They already had it. And Moses is telling them, you don't need to try to figure out who's going to go to heaven and find out how we can get saved and who's going to go across. It doesn't say into the deep. It says across the sea to find out how we're going to get saved. Who's going to bring it back and tell us what we need to do in order to get saved? And Moses says to them, it's not far away. You've already got it in your heart and in your mouth. Did the old, was the Old Testament a religion of in the heart and in the mouth? No. The Lord said, In Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds. Okay? But if you go, if you just go back there and you read, you think, hey, they had this same way in the Old Testament. But the Apostle Paul's bringing more out of it. There's a prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he's applying it to us right now by telling us that these questions of wondering who's going to do it for us. And where do we go, and how do we get it, and how do we find out how we get saved are all the wrong questions, because in the New Testament, everything is already done. In the Old Testament, it was all to be done. And you had to keep the law in order to be saved. Who shall ascend into heaven? And that's from Deuteronomy chapter 30. That is to bring Christ down from above. We, don't want to th- we can't think that way, because we're living on this side of the cross. Jesus came down from heaven for us. Or... Who shall descend into the deep? Who's going to die for us? Who's going to pay for our sins? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. That would be as if Jesus hadn't died already. You're bringing him back up and saying his death is worthless. But what saith it? Don't say those things, because you're going to undo Christ. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth. Now, he's still quoting from Deuteronomy 30. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And what is that word of faith? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Oh, now we're identifying that Christ. He's on his throne, and he went into the deep, into the depths of the earth, the heart of the earth, the Bible tells us, for our salvation. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Thou, is that a singular or a plural pronoun? 
Now that's a singular, it's a T word in our King James Bibles. When we say thou, is that a second person or a third person? Is Paul trying to teach the Romans here how they can go out the next day at work and get people saved? Is thou second person or third person? Second person. Now isn't that interesting? So he isn't saying if they, if they, if thou is what he's saying. That if thou, who's he saying that to? The Romans? Who are the Romans? Believers? You say, well, why would he say that to believers? These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God. First John 5, 13. <laughs> I love the Lord. If we'll just read it, there's so much sweetness there. He'll get back to preaching it to a third party. He's going to get back to that in the next few verses because he's, going to, he's still dealing with the issue of how can I get my kinsmen who are elect saved to a knowledge of the truth? Remember in chapter 1 he said, I want to be mutually encouraged by the mutual faith of your faith and mine. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As early as chapter 1 here, he's still explaining it. Do you want to know what the New Testament says, my Roman readers? Don't ask the questions that Moses popped up back there in Deuteronomy because someone's already done it for us in this testament. The Lord Jesus Christ descended and ascended. Does it say that? Do you know what book of the Bible? Does it say he first descended in order to ascend? Ephesians chapter 4 into the lower parts of the earth, into the deep. But what saith it, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The New Testament is a religion starting in the heart. God works, in, God works salvation in us from the inside out. In the Old Testament, God would circumcise their hearts from time to time in external repentance to come back to Israel, rebuild altars, reopen the temple, and worship him again. But it never worked well. And they never kept his commandments. And they couldn't be justified by it. So he told them, because that old covenant was faulty, because no one could keep it, its terms were too severe, I'm going to write them in their hearts. And it's a, it's a description of the New Testament that tells us how men are saved. Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. They both tell us that. And I want to share a few other places with you about that because our religion starts from the inside out so we're not asking questions on the outside who's going to go do it for us we're not looking for a savior we already have a savior we don't need someone to go to heaven and find out and we don't need to figure out who's trying to get to heaven or who's going to make it to heaven jesus christ already came down and has guaranteed the salvation of all the elect do you know that you're reading in chapter 10 that we've already had to read through eight five nine to get here there isn't any change. He's just trying to explain the poor state of those Israelites that thought they were justified by the law of Moses and what a pitiful situation they were in. The man that doeth these things shall live by them. Well, Jesus Christ has given us eternal life, and we do because of the life he's given us. We don't have to do to get the life. He gave us the life by what he did. Amen. Praise his glorious name. Amen. But what saith that the word is nigh thee? And I love this part right here. And believe me, we're just going to introduce it. And, and that's all we're going to get today. 
You know what verse I want to give you right off the bat? The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Don't you dare dive in to Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, and say that's what a man in the flesh, a sinner dead in trespasses and sins, can pull off by himself. No, because verse 8 explains it to us. But what saith it? What does the gospel of Christ declare? Don't talk the way they talk back there in Deuteronomy 30. What does the gospel say? It's already in you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. That is the word of faith which we preach. So you know what's there? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That if an elect person hears about the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to believe it. And he's going to want to confess it. Man is spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. We're walking according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. His heart is deceitfully and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. Romans chapter 3 has already told us what's in his tongue. Romans chapter 3 and verse 13, this same epistle. The Bible should not be read in a proof text method because you miss the context. If we just dive into Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, and come up with, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, we're going to violate everything we've read so far in this book. We need to understand the first nine chapters to know exactly what the apostle's saying. That is simply evidence of a man that's been elected by God, predestinated by God, the, the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ has already been applied to him, and so forth and so on. But here in Romans 3, verse 13, this is what it says about the human vocal ability. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That is what we are by nature. I'm going to read it again to you. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And then we have that the word of faith is in thy heart and even in thy mouth. Now, how in the world did we get such a transition from Romans chapter 3 to Romans chapter 10? Because in between we've had the work of God, of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit, not called regeneration in Romans, but called regeneration elsewhere, which is why we study the whole Bible, that gives us a new heart. And in that new heart, there's a love of Christ and a knowledge of Christ. As thou hast given him, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and thy Son, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is given to us that we can know the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't get to know the Lord Jesus Christ in order to get eternal life. That is Arminian heresy. Right. It's in our hearts. It's in our mouths. Who put it there? The Lord and He alone. Man has no glory of His own. I'd sing you who right now, but it wouldn't be helpful. Look at John chapter 8 and verse 47. Give me a couple more minutes. I don't want to be long this morning. I don't want to introduce this passage to us. John chapter 8 and verse 47. I hate all error, but Arminianism is just a stinking error. Such a Christ-denying, blaspheming doctrine. 
of pulling him down off his throne and you getting him to come into your heart and regenerate you and finish his work of redemption. He said it is finished on the cross and I believe it and God let him sit down. John 8, 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. If we're, to, if we're to preach the gospel and it's already in your heart and in your mouth, how did it get there? It couldn't, it's not in these people. John chapter 10 and verse 26 says, But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. In John chapter 8, I've already read to you John 17 verses 2 and 3. Remember, I mentioned Lydia already this morning. If you can flip quickly, look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. Acts 16, 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us. Now she is hearing the message of righteousness, which is of faith. The real way people get saved. That Jesus died for their sins and rose again for their justification. That it was his obedience that made them righteous. Their faith, what role does it have? It believes God's promise to them, like Abraham believed God's promise. And then they are supposed to add good works to their faith, just like Abraham added good works to his faith. Here we are. A certain woman named Lydia. I'm thankful that in the books of God's decrees for all the events in the Western Hemisphere, it says, and a certain man named Jonathan, and a certain man named Jerry, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us. I wonder why she was worshiping God. I wonder why Paul was preaching to people who worshiped God. If they were already worshiping God, why was he wasting time with them? He could have been in an orphanage, a brothel, or in a jail, having a jail ministry. But why was he out by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made? Because he was looking for those who had the word of faith in their heart and in their mouth. And as soon as he preached, look what happened. Whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Those things that he said, the words of faith and of godliness, she heard. And when she was baptized, well, what transpired between the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15? She said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. She had to in order to be baptized. And her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come into my house and abide there. And Luke says, she constrained us. And we took her up on her offer. Look at the change in a certain woman named Lydia. Are you a certain man today? Are you a certain woman today? A certain boy, girl today? Has God done a work in your heart to where you love the Lord Jesus Christ? He has put it in your heart and he's put it in your mouth. Will you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, it's going to change your life. You need to go around and let people know that you're a Christian. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed to speak of Jesus of Nazareth. Don't use God 
Everyone uses God. Islam uses God. Hindus use God. Mormons use God, and they don't know our God. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Look at how the apostle puts them in reverse order to how they sequentially happen, just to let you know he's not dealing with how you get yourself saved. He is simply describing what kind of evidence it takes to show that you are saved. And when it comes out of your mouth, do you know what he teaches in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3? No man can say that Jesus Christ is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Do you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? See, he's already gone into the deep. He's already gone and died for our sins. He's already gone to heaven. He's already sat down, the work of redemption being finished. And for you to start fussing about what do I need to do to get saved and who's going to bring me the message of how to get saved, you're undoing the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All we do is believe by faith. Abraham believed. That's how great your seed's going to be. We believe Jesus died and rose again and paid for our sins. It doesn't regenerate us. It doesn't justify us. It doesn't elect us. It converts us from ignorance to a knowledge of the truth. And we can go on and go much further The Bible says that we are to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do you know anyone that doesn't care about Jesus Christ? Do you know anyone? Do you care? What made the difference? You're smarter? He made the difference. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And the word of faith that Paul preached, he went, therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, because he wanted to find men who had the word of faith, the gospel already implanted in them. Are we going to a chapter in the second assembly that reads something like this in James 1.21? Wherefore, laying aside or laying apart all filthiness, and superfluity of naughtiness, receive with meekness the engrafted word. What word is engrafted, and where is it engrafted? In the heart. He's written his laws in our heart. It's the preaching of the gospel and the word of God that draws it into activity. But the the receptive ability of it is already there, because it is God which worketh in us both to will and to do. Of his good pleasure. The desire and the ability are worked in by God. And the gospel calls it into activity. That's what Paul was looking for. Their religion was do and live. Our religion is I'll give you life and then you can do. Thank you, Lord. There's so much more that could be said and it will be said. If God did not work in us the desire and the ability to please Him, we could not do so. Because the 8th chapter of this book tells me, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But yet I just told you, He worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. But he that is in the flesh cannot please God. There, There was a dramatic change in you. How do I know it's in you? How can you know it? It took place in you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. How important is Jesus of Nazareth to you? Is He the high King of heaven? Should you be baptized in His name? Should you repent of your sins? Should you open your mouth to everyone that knows you? Jesus is my Lord. 
Jerry finishes every email to me, all glory to Jesus, both now and forever. I don't miss your closings, brother. I love them. The words of Jonathan are ended. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.